We are going to be looking at John 5 tonight, but I would like us to begin by turning to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. This is a parable that Jesus gives. And I think as we're going to be obvious, he's talking about Verse 33, verse 33 of Matthew 21. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and drew him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in in their season. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowd because they heard him to be a prophet. They held him to be a prophet. Let's pray together. Father, we do come now to your word, the firm foundation, and we ask, uh, as we've been singing, that you would open our eyes and our ears to understand, help us to perceive the truth that you would have for us tonight. Speak your word to us, we pray. We come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The truth of the parable, of course, is that the Jews, uh, he's referring especially to the leaders of the Jews, the priests and the Pharisees, that these Jews would reject Jesus and kill him. And by doing that, they would be rejecting their Messiah, their God. That parable, the truth of that parable, is going to be lived out. We're going to see it being worked out in John chapter 5, because John, in John chapter 5, and you can turn there now, John, in John chapter 5, tells us about the confrontation that Jesus has with these same leaders, these Pharisees and the chief priests, the scribes, and so forth. And we see Jesus, number one, revealing himself to them as their Messiah and as their God. He does that in two ways. First, by performing a miracle that only God could do. He healed the man who had been an invalid for 30 years just by willing it so and telling the man to 
get up, take up his bed, and walk. The man got up, took up his bed, and walked. And the Pharisees saw that man walking. It was a man that they knew was every day. They passed him by just like Jesus passed him by many times, and they saw him walking, carrying his bed. And what did they see? It's not lawful for you to carry your bed on the Sabbath. For completely blind to what Jesus had just done. Jesus performed a miracle. The second way that Jesus revealed himself to them as their Messiah, their God, was that he claimed to be equal with the Father. He claimed to be God. What did the Jews do? They rejected that. Just exactly how Jesus said that they would in that parable. Uh, John, the Apostle John, earlier in the book said that Jesus came into his own, and his own did what? They did not receive him. And we see that happening right here in John chapter 5. So you see, once Jesus claims to be equal with the Father, in verse 17, Jesus said to them, My Father is working into now, and I am working. Verse 18, this is why speaking said in the parable they would do, because not only was he or calling, calling God his own father, himself equal with God. So they rejected him. He revealed himself to them. They reject him. And now, in the rest of the chapter, Jesus is going to respond to their rejection. And he's re going to respond to with four very sharp rebukes in which he's going to unfold for them four consequences of their rejection. The first three we've already seen. By rejecting Jesus' deity, they uh, dishonor God. Not only do they dishonor Jesus, but they dishonor God the Father. By rejecting Jesus' deity, secondly, they means that they are dead in sin. They do not have saving faith. They are dead in sin and under the judgment of God. Thirdly, we saw that they are doomed eternally. So one day they will stand before God, the judge of all the universe, of the whole world. They will stand before him and be judged for their denial and doomed. Uh, they will, Jesus tells them, be standing before him as their judge at that day. Tonight, we're going to look at the fourth consequence of their rejection, which is they are defenseless. When they stand before Jesus at that great last judgment, they will be defenseless because they're not going to be able to claim they didn't know. They're not going to be able to claim nobody ever told me. They're not going to be able to claim ignorance or anything because they were given repeated warnings and witnesses to the deity of Jesus, to the deity, the truth of his deity. So follow along now as I read verses 31 through 47. 31 through 47. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, that's John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. 
Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And, verse 37, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If I come in another's, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. And if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? God bless the reading of his word. So did you see the four witnesses to the deity of Jesus? The first one, in verse 31, is Jesus' own claims himself, right? Verse 31, Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So he's the first one who has, he's calling on himself as a witness to his own deity. That's what he's been doing already in this chapter. He has claimed to be equal with the Father, and then Jesus went on to confirm that, that he really means that, yes, I am equal with the Father by claiming that he is worthy of equal honor as the Father. So if you look back at verse 23, you'll see that. We'll start in verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who has sent him. So does Jesus claim to be God? He claimed to be uh, worthy of equal honor as the Father. Not only that, but in verse 24, he, e- he claims to be the equal uh, object of our faith, of, sal- of salvation, the f- uh, faith of salvation. So if you look at verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So hearing and believing Jesus is the same as hearing and believing the Father. They are both the object of our faith, of saving faith. Not only that, but Jesus claims to uh, have equal authority to judge as the Father. Verses 28 and 29, you'll see Jesus is the judge. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, that 
his is talking about Jesus himself, and will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And that judgment is done by the Son. You'll see up there in verse 26, for the Father has life in himself, and so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So God the Father and the Son are totally equal, meaning Jesus is fully God, just like the Father is fully God. So to put it in another, another way, there is only one who is equal, who is, excuse me, who is worthy of honor. Who is that? God. Only God is worthy of honor. That God is Jesus. Jesus claims to be that God who is worthy of honor. There is only one who is the object of saving faith. That is God. Jesus claims to be that God. There is only one before whom all the earth will stand to be judged. That is God. Jesus claims to be that God. So don't ever let anyone cause you to doubt that Jesus ever claimed to be God. He did. He did so clearly. He did it boldly. And he did it repeatedly. So C.S. Lewis is right when he says that Jesus is either a lunatic or he's a liar or he is who he says he is, is God. But the truth of that claim, of Jesus' claim, must be supported by more witnesses. Right? As Jesus says in verse 31, if he bears witness alone, his testimony is not true. We know that more than one witness to confirm a matter. So Jesus is going to call on some more witnesses. Verse 32, there's another who bears witness about me, and I know that his t the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Let's talk about John the Baptist. So let's ask the question, did John the Baptist really testify to the deity of Jesus. Okay, we always think of John the Baptist of calling people to repentance, but did he really testify to the deity of Jesus? We'll go back a few pages to John chapter 1. Let's look at his testimony. So John 1, 19 through 23. John 1, 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? John confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? You need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, we read that this morning, that's from Isaiah 40, that he, uh, John the Baptist quotes there, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the who? Okay, Jesus was the forerunner of Jesus, uh, John was the forerunner of Jesus, he was preparing the way by preparing people's hearts, by calling them to repent. And who is he preparing the way of the Lord? That's God. If you have any question about that, listen to 
the rest of the quote from Isaiah 40. This is Isaiah 41 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak to Jerusalem and cry to her. It has ended. Her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Did you hear what it said? Who's he making a highway for? Who is he praying the, preparing the way for? God. For the Lord, for God, it says. Prepare a highway, uh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain shall be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it, Together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's exactly what John the Baptist was doing. He was preparing the way for the Lord, for God, and his glory would be seen. John 1, 14 and 15, since you're in John 1 there, says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out this, is he of whom I said, he who comes after me rings before me because he was before me. Because what? He's God. Well, let me just show you one more. That one's extremely clear, but here's another one, John 1, 29. This is after John has answered the, uh, the men who were sent by the, the chief priests and all. The next day it says, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now let me ask you, who forgives sin? Only God. Only God forgives sin. Isaiah 20, 43, 25, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. So God and God alone forgives sin, John the Baptist points directly at Jesus and says, that's him. He's the one who forgives sin. That's God. So, verse, back to John 5, verses 34 and 35 to complete this about John the Baptist. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may believe. So there's going to be a greater testimony than John's testimony. It's not just John alone, a testimony of man. But he was a burning light, burning and shining lamp, and you were real willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So, of course, the Jews, true of them, they rejoiced to hear him preach, but eventually John the Baptist pointed his finger at them, at the leaders, the Jews, and the, Phar the, Jews the Pharisees, and the scribes, and called them to repentance as well. And that was the end of their liking John the Baptist. Okay, let's go to witness number three, verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Of course, 
uh, we've already mentioned that in the beginning of this chapter, we, had one of, we have one of those very miracles that Jesus is talking about. And he's talking about the fact that his miracles are signs. They are proofs of his deity, of who he really is. Because in doing the miracles, Jesus was doing what only God had the power to do. Uh, things like Jesus uh, took jars, each containing 20 to 30 gallons of water, and just willed them into wine. Or in the other time when an official uh, came to Cana from Capernaum to find Jesus, to tell him that his son was back at Capernaum dying, would he come? And Jesus just said to him, go, your son lives. He just willed it so from a different town, and the boy, the very minute he said that, was healed. The father found that out when the servants met him back on the way home. And he found out the exact time that the, man, the boy was healed was when Jesus said that. And of course, in the beginning of this chapter, we saw when Jesus just said to the man who was an invalid for 38 years, arise, take up your bed, and walk. And the man got up, took up his bed, and started walking. Only what God could do. And these were, John doesn't record a lot of them like that, but there were many that Jesus was doing. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 23. You'll see that Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, and many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing, plural. So he was there in Jerusalem, healing, 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 many. So much so that you'll see in our next chapter that you know, we looked at before when I preached, chapter 6, verse 2, says a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing. Mark tells us that he was so busy doing signs that he and his disciples didn't even have time to eat. And the, these Jews these uh, Pharisees and scribes and so forth saw with their own eyes Jesus doing these miracles and they were proofs that he was indeed God, the miracles. So you have so far three, two of those proofs, two of those testimonies are things that they heard, right? They heard in person, Jesus Christ himself preached, claimed to be God. They heard John the Baptist preach, heard him point out Jesus as God. And then the third one is something they saw. So they've heard, they saw the miracles. So they've heard some witnesses. They've seen the witness. Now, Jesus is going to call on the ultimate witness. So if you were wanting to know if I were really Kendall Dean's son, what would be the ultimate witness? Kendall Dean, right? Just go to him and ask him. Look at verse 37. And here's the fourth witness. And the father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me so the fourth witness is God the Father. 
He's the ultimate witness. You'll see that from here until the end of this chapter, Jesus doesn't mention the other three. Because this one settles the matter once and for all. First he's going to tell us what the Father's witness is not, and then he'll tell us what the Father's witness is. Okay? So verse 37 again, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Okay, what is his witness not? Okay, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. Okay, the Father's witness does not come by sight or by sound. Okay, the preaching of John and Jesus were by sound. The, the witness of the miracles of Jesus was by sight. But the witness of the Father does not come by sight or sound. It's not something that you see, that you witness like the miracle or something you hear like an audible voice speaking. It's not that. So what is it? Verse 38, and you do not have what? His word. What's the Father's witness? It's the word of God. It's the written word of God. I know that because, let's keep reading, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the what? The scriptures. Okay? Okay, it's not an audible voice from the Father that they hear. Okay, it's not something that they see like a miracle, but it's, the word of God. That's the Father's witness, the Old Testament, and the context here. So just think about, let it sink in what he's saying. Can you imagine hearing Jesus Christ in person preach, or John the Baptist preach, or see the miracles of Jesus? You know what's even more important? That greater authority, greater, I mean, that settles everything, is what you hold in your hands. It's the word of God. That's the Father's witness. Not by sight, not by sound, by the written word of God. One of the things I love about this passage is that it gives us a glimpse into what Jesus thought about the scripture and the scriptures. So he calls the scriptures, first of all, the word of God, Okay, that's the word logos, you know, the communication of God. When God wants to communicate something, it comes by his word, all right? And then he calls it the scriptures, okay? That word scriptures is graphe, it means writings, okay? So God committed his word, his communication to us in writing, in the written word of God. And then look down at verse... 45, and you'll see here the, suprem the title of my sermon is The Supremacy of the Written Word, and you're going to see here that it's so supreme that it's the thing that condemns them. It's not the teaching of Jesus that they heard. It's not John the Baptist and not the miracles. It's what's recorded in Scripture because he says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you set your hope, for if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. If you do not believe his, what? Writings. 
you will not believe my word. God's word, what God wants to say to us, his communication to us, is in writing. It's in the scriptures. Uh, for them, it was the Old Testament. For us, who have the completed Bible now, the Old Testament and New Testament is God's word, his communication to us in writing, in the language of man. So that word that uh, is used for writings in verse 47 of Moses, uh, it's the word grama, okay, from which we get our word what? Grammar, okay? It's in the language of men. So what you really have in the Bible is God's word incarnate, God's word enfleshed in human language. That's what he has given us. It's not just the words of man. Yes, God used Moses and the other, other writers, but it's God's infallible, inerrant, inspired word, his word to us. I love what it says in verse 37, the tense that Jesus uses. It says that his voice you haven't seen, his form you haven't heard, but um, um, the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness. That bearing witness, which he's referring to the Bible, the scriptures, is in the perfect tense. It means that it's something that God spoke, but it continues on. So in other words, the word of God that we have isn't just some record of some history that happened in the past, okay? It certainly is that, but it's more than that. It's a living word. It's something that God continues to speak through to us today. It's living. It's a living word. So that is why they will be defenseless when they stand before the divine judge at the last judgment. It's because they did not give heed to the written word of God. So uh, this sermon is the last of my sermons in uh, John 5, which has been a series on the deity of Jesus, using the word confess, as in what we believe, not just an intellectual agreement, but what we commit ourselves to, heart, mind, and soul, what we live for, what we would die for, and what we publicly profess with our mouths. And I've said three things so far. Number one is that the only way that you can honor God is by confessing the deity of Jesus Christ. You must confess the deity of Jesus Christ. It's an essential doctrine. Secondly, that you can only have saving faith by confessing the deity of Jesus. Okay, we saw that in verse 24 that we read already. Uh, we have eternal life. We pass from judgment. Uh, we've already passed judgment. We have saving faith. So to have saving faith, you must confess the deity of Jesus. And then last time we looked at uh, that confessing the deity of Jesus means it's something that you must live out. You must live out your confession by doing good to the glory of God, Father. And before the judge... Uh, we will stand with are those who have done good. We've lived out our confession. We believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and then lived that out. And then tonight, this last point is that it's all about authority. 
right? Upon what authority will the denial of the deity of Jesus be proven false? And upon what authority for us do we base our confession of the deity of Jesus Christ? What proves that it is true? Why do you believe that Jesus is God? Right? Because of the word of God. That's it. We base it on the word of God. It's not tradition. It's not creeds. It's not the statements of somebody else. It's not because that's what we were taught when we were growing up, whatever. It's only the word of God. We must base it on the word of God. Of course, for us, because we have the New Testament now in writing, as well as the Old Testament, we have all of those, right? Witnesses that we talked about. Because uh, in the New Testament, we have committed to writing the preaching of Jesus, the preaching of John the Baptist, and the miracles of Jesus. They're all there. So we have it all. The Jews just had the Old Testament and then what they saw and heard, but we have it all committed to writing the inspired, infallible Word of God. Verse 38 should be a warning to us. Well, let's go back to verse 37 and see the context. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have not heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. They had his word, right? I mean, they were given the Old Testament. They had the scrolls. They had the writings. They had it. They possessed it. But it was not in their heart. That can happen to us. We can have it. We can possess it. And it not be in our hearts. It's the difference between uh, having it externally, right, sitting on the table or in your study or whatever, and having it in your heart. It's between us possessing it and it possessing us. The, the difference between us just having it or it actually ruling in our hearts. They possessed it, but they missed its blessing. We read early uh, in our responsive reading all those verses from Psalm 19 that talked about the many blessings that come to us through the Word of God. Do you know that it's possible to miss all those blessings? They did. The Word of God is a double-edged sword, right? They missed the blessings and they got the curse. They got the judgment from it. But just remind ourselves for a minute of some of those blessings that we get from the Word, that we can get from the Word of God. It can be a delight to us. It can be something that's more precious to us than gold. Uh, it can bring us purity, life, uh, taste sweeter than honey, bring us joy, rejoicing, it can be a lamp to our feet, bring us strength, salvation, hope, comfort, grace, steadfast love, good judgment, mercy, faithfulness, wisdom, understanding, truth, peace, deliverance, and help. And that's just a few of the verses that we read from Psalm 119. They can do all of that 
but only if it's living in our heart. I like how it says it there in verse 38. They did not have his word abiding. It was not living at home in their heart. It wasn't it was something that they possessed in their hands and in their homes, but they missed its blessing because it was not abiding in them. It was not possessing them, not ruling them. There are two ways that you can possess the Bible, God's word, and yet miss its blessings. Both of these were true of the Jews. One is neglect, the other is misuse. Neglect and misuse. So the Jews in Jesus' day were not guilty of the neglect part because we know that in verse 39 he says that they searched the scriptures. So they were doing something with the scriptures. But there was a time in Israel's history, right, that they neglected the word of God. You remember uh, during the reign of Josiah, king of Judah, that... uh, before Josiah, during Manasseh's reign, they had closed the temple. It was idolatry, it was rampant. So when Josiah came uh, to, the, to be king, he had them restore the temple. So when they went in to clean it up and get it to, to use again, they found the scroll of the Old Testament. So they took it to Josiah and they said, look what we found. They started reading it to him, and for the first time, Josiah was hearing the word of God read to him. And of course, it greatly concerned him because he heard about the judgments that would come because of their sin and idolatry. So for during Manasseh's reign, maybe 50-some years, no word, no word of God. It was probably just put in a nice, safe, neat place in the temple and the doors closed. Neglect. We can neglect God's word. As a matter of fact, I think either you are neglecting God's word or you are being diligent to do the things that we read about in our second scripture reading. Uh, We read some of those verses in Psalm 19 that tells about our responsibility, what we do with the word of God. Okay, if we're not neglecting it, we're doing these things. We're meditating on it. Do you take a portion of the word of God with you during the day and mull it over, chew on it all day long? We store it up, the psalmist says. Do you memorize and learn the word of God so that you can bring it out when you need it? Fix my eyes upon it. Do you do that? Do you take a time where you put everything else away so that you're not distracted by anything, just fixed completely on God's word. Cling to it. Do you do that when things don't go during your day? Do you cling to a verse of scripture, the word of God? Seek it. Do you seek it? Uh, I like that word. Uh, It's something that you go to over and over and over and over again. You beat a path to the word of God. Do you do that? Lift up your hands toward. Think. Do you think about it? Do you just read it and forget about it? Do you think about it? Sing it. Do you sing it? Even if you can't carry a tune like me, you can still sing it. Turn my feet to it. I think you can take that pretty literally because when I get up in the morning, I have a lot of options of 
where I could turn my feet toward. I could go out to my garden that I love to do. I could just go to work early. I got a lot to do there. I could turn my feet to a lot. But do I turn my feet to go to the Word of God? Oh, that's the first way that we can miss the blessing, that it can, we can miss it being in our heart, is if we neglect it. The second way is by misuse, and that's what these... Jews were guilty of. They were guilty of misusing the word. Another word you might use is abuse. They abuse the word of God. But we'll use the word misuse. They misuse the word in four ways. And we'll close with this tonight, just quickly. It's very important. It says in verse 39, they searched the scriptures. But look at what it says. This is the first abuse. This first abuse I call self-reliance. You search the scriptures because you think. When they went to the scriptures, they were just self-reliant. They, were, they thought they knew what it said, what it ought to say, what they were looking for, they thought. Instead of being self-reliant, what should we be? We should be helplessly dependent on the Holy Spirit because all the spiritual things are spiritually discerned. We can only understand the Word of God with the help of the Spirit. We must come in helpless dependence to the Word, not with just our thoughts, what we think it says. Reliance is the first of the Word, of the Word of God. The second one is to be sidetracked. And they were very guilty of this one. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me and you refuse to come to me. Okay, what did they think? What did they go to get out of the scriptures? What they could do to have eternal life. Okay, right? They wanted to know the law and they wanted to make that law something that they could do. And what did they miss? They missed the main message of the Bible, didn't they? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the theme of Scripture. Okay? Uh, and we can do that. We can get sidetracked. We can use the Word of God for, to support some political or social cause, some conspiracy theory, some clever idea, whatever it is that we have, and miss Jesus Christ. We ought to see Jesus Christ, right, in every passage of scripture okay you remember uh, after the resurrection Jesus appeared to those disciples on the road to Emmaus those two disciples and it says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted them in all the scriptures <laughs> not one left out all the scriptures the things concerning himself the Bible is about Jesus and we need to keep the main thing the main thing Jesus Christ. So when you go to the scriptures to study it, to read it, you're going to see the glory of Jesus. It's there. Look for it. Okay, self-reliance. Uh, that's a misuse. Sidetracked, getting sidetracked. The third one is selfish. The, these men, uh, Jewish leaders, were studying the word of God for their own glory. For their own glory. And you'll see that as we read a few verses here quickly. 41, I do not receive glory from people. That doesn't mean Jesus doesn't receive glory from us. He's talking about in the 
context here, he doesn't receive his affirmation of who he is from people. He receives that from the Father. But they are not like that, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in my own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Okay, they were searching the scriptures, uh, studying the scriptures to find out these rules that they th thought that they could keep, and why were they doing that? Because they wanted to be seen by men, right? It was for their glory, not for God's glory. Do you study and go to the scriptures for God's glory, to know him, to love him, and to glorify him? And the last misuse of scripture is a shallow use of scripture. A shallow use. Verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? I mean, did they believe Moses? They did, right? I mean, they would say that they did. They believed Moses. I mean, he even says here that they set their hope on him. But they were only seeing, they were only looking for surface level you know, do's and don'ts, what can I do to look good to others? That's all they were doing. They weren't going deep to find out what did Moses really say. And I don't think Jesus is saying here that there's one, only one passage where, Jesus, where Moses spoke of Jesus, that you missed that passage. I think he's talking about all of Moses' writings, all of the Old Testament. So some, some commentators will point to the passage where Moses says, that there's a prophet who's going to come who's greater than me. There's another prophet coming. But I think that Jesus is talking about all of Moses' writing because it's all about Jesus, right? The whole sacrificial system, who's that about? It's not about things that we can do to be righteous. It's about Jesus who is going to make us righteous by his righteousness and his death. So we need to study. Remember, the word of that has come to us and is in writing in human language. That means we have to study the history of Moses or whoever we're studying. We need the history, uh, the context, the words, the grammar, compare scripture with scripture. We got to dig deep. That's our responsibility. So today we don't hear with our ears Jesus preaching, we don't hear John the Baptist preaching, we don't see the Jesus actually in front of us doing a miracle personally. But we have something better. We have the written word of God through which he is still speaking today. So let us not neglect the word or misuse the word, but let us dig deep into the scriptures, studying grammar, the words, comparing scripture with scripture, so forth, so that we can understand what God is saying to us so that we can love him and glorify him. And above all, all of his glory in every passage. Only then will God's word live at home in our hearts. 
then we'll be able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does he prospers. Let's pray. Father, oh, may that be true of